It's always slightly mind-bending when reading the biographies of great men of the Cold War, particularly men who were involved in the nuclear bomb. And then to suddenly realise they were born in the Victorian era. This applies very well to Harold Macmillan, British Prime Minister during the Cuba crisis. The Americans, of course, were being led by handsome young JFK. But in Britain we had a Victorian. A Victorian dealing with the prospect of thermonuclear war. It sounds very odd, and it's a good reminder of how time stretches. It's gummy and fluid. It doesn't happen neatly in eras with a date tagged at the beginning and end. Yes, the Victorian era began 1838, ended 1901. Nice, neat dates at beginning and end. But the Victorians went on and on and on. People who were born and raised, formed and educated in that era, they persisted. So much so that one of them, Harold Macmillan, born 1894, went on to see us through the Cuba crisis. So the Victorian era ended on a certain date, but the Victorians didn't. I think of one old lady, uh, Florence Panel, seen on the Thames TV YouTube channel, and she was filmed in 1977, reminiscing about the Victorian era, at the age of 108. Let's listen to her here. Have you ever been in an aeroplane? Never. Would you like to? I shouldn't mind now, but I wouldn't when they first came in. I never, uh, I never fancied them. But I, I would now because I'm more adventuresome. <laughs> I think you've been very adventurous right through your life. What's the biggest change of all you've seen? The biggest change? Everything. Nothing is the same. Everything is changed. Quite incredible to think that this lady had lived long enough to see the Jack the Ripper murders and the moon landings. And then thinking of Macmillan again, he fought in the trenches in the First World War. The war we all thought would end war, the Great War. Nothing else can ever be as massive and as devastating. Old enough to have fought in the trenches and to have seen war spread and grow and hideously multiply into the threat of apocalyptic thermonuclear warfare. Harold Macmillan's son uh, later said that his father sometimes had nightmares and they were always either about his time in the trenches or about the bomb. Well, it just always seems strange to me that you could be born uh, as he was into all the wealth and satisfaction and certainty of the Victorian era, and then come to live under the threat of the hydrogen bomb. How quickly things gallop towards us. The subject of today's podcast is another Victorian who lived into the thermonuclear era and who played a big part in the development of Britain's nuclear bomb. It is John Anderson. Now, don't shrug thinking, I've never heard of John Anderson, because You do know at least one thing about him. 
the wartime Anderson shelter is named after him. That little curved steel hut which so many British people had at the bottom of the garden and which was still sitting in my grand's neighbour's garden even into the early 90s, I would say. And of course, some still exist now. They were named after John Anderson. So let's find out more about him and how he went from elegant Victoriana to air raids and to the bomb. John Anderson was born up here in Scotland in Dalkeith, which is a town just outside Edinburgh. He was born in 1882 and went on to University of Edinburgh and then on to Leipzig University, where he wrote a thesis, which would later prove useful for his career, on the chemistry of uranium. But even though he was an absolute star student, he opted not to pursue a career in chemistry and swerved instead into the civil service. He had a thriving career until he switched again, this time actually standing for election, and he entered Parliament as an independent in 1938. He quickly entered the cabinet. I suppose we must remember that he wasn't a total newbie to the world of power and politics. No point in a time of crisis and having such a good man mucking about on the back benches. His job on entering the cabinet was Home Secretary, so right in there at the deep end. And he had the specific duty of looking after air raid preparations. And then, of course, his most famous air raid preparation was the Anderson Shelter. And to use a trendy word, that shelter has become iconic. If you think of life on the home front, you'll think of gas masks, uh, dig for victory, cheery evacuees waving from a train, and of course, the Anderson shelter. He was also responsible for another uh, hugely important civil defence measure, and that was allowing people to shelter on the London Underground. This had been initially forbidden, as the authorities wanted to make sure the tube was unimpeded, especially during war, um, industry and the ticking over of the economy is as important as ever, and so nothing must happen which impedes people getting to work and keeping the economy ticking over. The tube must still run. But people were taking shelter there, on the platforms, whether the government liked it or not. And the government came to realise that, I suppose, and it was Anderson who officially lifted the ban. He also introduced rules uh, down in the underground shelters and in other communal public shelters about hygiene and toilet facilities. This was hugely important, of course, as you don't want a public health emergency sweeping the nation when you're at war. And of course the prospect of hundreds of people confined together without fresh air for a prolonged period was a worry. Newspaper ads from the time show lots of remedies being flogged for the dreaded so-called shelter cold. The message was that it's unpatriotic to catch a cold, as that keeps you from work. And old Adolf will just love it if you sneeze. So that was John Anderson in the war, or at least in the early years of the war. 
He was replaced by Herbert Morrison, he of the Morrison Shelter fame, which I think is a terrifying air raid shelter, um, a version of which we saw being tested in Mick Jackson's A Guide to Armageddon. I always think of it as a, a boxy metal coffin. You might be entombed in your sturdy metal coffin as the house collapses around you. So Anderson was replaced. Um, apparently he was no good in front of the press and the people. His skills lay as an organiser and administrator. But throw him in front of the media and he was... Uh, well, he lacked the, the warmth and the wits and the, the speaking skills which might endear him to the public and to the media. And he soon came under attack from the press for not digging deep shelters. And his attempts at defending himself and at defending the government weren't so great when he was in the media glare. And so Churchill um, moved him to safety, <laughs> took him out of the front line and gave him another job, which was a promotion, making him Lord President of the Council. He was so efficient and capable that he was uh, in that role, handling all sorts of home front concerns like wages and rationing and social services. Uh, he was so good at it that Churchill nicknamed him the automatic pilot of the home front. So all about efficiency and admin and competence and getting things done. But uh, just no charm, <laughs> no personality about him. And uh, the historian... Kevin Rain, in his book Churchill and the Bomb, likens uh, poor John Anderson to, in appearance, an undertaker, straight from a Dickens novel. So he was taken out of the, the public eye, moved aside slightly to Lord President of the Council, and this is where things start to go a bit nuclear. Along with this promotion, he was given another role. He became the de facto minister in charge of Britain's nuclear bomb. The project was afoot to build one, and he was going to be in charge. Officially, his title was Chairman of the Advisory Committee on Atomic Energy. So they had this solid, competent, slightly dull man in charge, which makes sense. You need someone who will get the job done. This was not a time for cavaliers and bravado. Britain had decided to proceed with an atomic bomb project thanks to work done by two refugee scientists, Rudolf Perls and Otto Fisch, both of whom were working at the University of Birmingham. They wrote a, a now famous memorandum in March 1940, which was the first to say that an atomic bomb was possible using a small amount of fissile uranium-235. Until this memorandum was written, it had been assumed that to build an atomic bomb, you would need a massive, impractical amount of uranium. But these guys revealed that no, a small amount would do it of uranium-235. This memo suggested that this thing could be done. The bomb could be built. It was no longer just theoretically possible, it was now physically possible. And more importantly, it was plausible. 
Their memo was given to the so-called MOD committee in London. They examined it, studied it, and they delivered the verdict that yes, we agree, it is possible. Crucially, this was championed by the government's chief scientific advisor, Frederick Lindemann, who was later Viscount Cherwell. He was very close to Churchill, and he told him it was, quote, quite clear that we must go forward. It would be unforgivable if we let the Germans develop a process ahead of us, by means of which they could defeat us in war, or reverse the verdict after they had been defeated. So, with the weight of Lindemann behind it, Churchill said, yep, let's do this thing, and it was all go. So those were the three blokes at the head of the project. Churchill, of course, as Prime Minister, Lindemann, and Anderson. All three, of course, bringing different strengths. Uh, Churchill being the boss, of course. Lindemann, the scientific genius. And Anderson, the great administrator. The project to build Britain's atomic bomb needed a secret code name. We're at war, remember? So there's no point calling it the, the Big Fat Nuke Project. Instead, it was named Tube Alloys. Now, there's no point trying to work out what Tube Alloys means. It's totally meaningless. It gives nothing away. And it's dull. And yes, that dull, boring name was chosen by our nice, sensible, competent chap from Dalkeith, John Anderson. His next task in charge of tube alloys was to clamp down on ICI, the mammoth imperial chemical industries, one of Britain's biggest companies, and one who held hopes of being involved in this emerging industry. But the decision had been made that the prospects of power and weaponry, which uranium fission made possible, were just too important and too crucial to the nation, both in peace and in war, to be handed over to a private company. And so ICI were told that the whole thing was going to be government-run. But of course, it would have been churlish to cut ICI out completely, to pretend that their massive expertise didn't exist, and so the company's research director was moved across to the new atomic bomb project, two tube alloys, and was made a civil servant for the duration. So he wasn't there as an employee of ICI, he was a civil servant. And John Anderson, being sensible, emphasised that ICI would be working for the government, and not vice versa. There was no doubt who was in charge here. But uh, Kevin Rain in his book tells us that this small involvement of an ICI director planted a seed of suspicion in some American minds when it came to working with Britain on the atomic bomb. There were some across the pond who could not shake the suspicion that the UK government was working hand-in-hand with private industry to try and get ahead in this new atomic race. Nonetheless, FDR was keen to work with Britain. At the beginning, of course, 1941, Britain was ahead of America in atomic research. Obviously they were. This was quite natural. They had first received the memo from Peerles and Frisch 
They had first formed tube alloys and they were at war. Desperate times, call for desperate measures, of course. It was all go in Britain because we had so much to lose. America had no such desperate drive to get ahead in the atomic race, uh, not yet. So things over there were moving at a far slower pace. So FDR considered it all and said, yeah, why not? Let's, let's work together with Britain on this thing. And he wrote to Churchill offering basically atomic partnership. Let's work together. Churchill was, as we know, uh, fantastically keen for America to come to Britain's aid in the war. And so it might be surprising to learn that he replied to FDR's offer in very cool and bland terms. He agreed to cooperating, but not, as we might say, (laughs) he didn't bite FDR's hand off. Why? It has been suggested that Lindemann, the chief scientist and very close to Churchill and always influential, suggested we not rush into partnership with the Americans. Why would we? When we, the British, are so far ahead. We have tube alloys already on the go, whereas the Americans, they're just at the start of the process. If we're ahead, why should we hand it all over? Lindemann and Anderson wanted to keep some kind of British independence in this new atomic race. So their thinking was, yeah, let's work with them, but keep it cool, keep it loose. Don't hand over everything to them. We hold all the cards, after all. Hashtag tube alloys. Kevin Rain writes, quote, The consequences of Churchill's rebuff of Roosevelt would be costly and far-reaching. We would never again, never again, be in such a position, able to be (laughs) disdainful to the Americans. Clearly, Lindemann and Anderson badly underestimated the Americans, who, of course, (laughs) soon zoomed wildly ahead of us. And when we did cooperate in the Manhattan Project, uh, arguably we were doing so as junior partners, when we could have been equals. Churchill missed the bus, some historians argue, because of the advice of Lindemann and Anderson. And I quote here from Kevin's book, In other words, Churchill missed the bus because his advisers chained him to the bus stop. hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you want to support me on Patreon, please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. I've lost quite a few patrons over the past week or so. Um, I assume that's because it's miserable January and everyone's tightening their belts. A few people have reduced the amount they pay each month and that's something you can do on Patreon. If you choose an amount to pay each month, you can increase it or you can cancel it, or you can increase it whenever you like. It's total flexibility. But please do consider becoming a patron of the podcast if you like it. And I've got a new patron over the past week, and that's John Lane. So hello, John, and thank you for supporting me. And if you join at £3 a month, one of the benefits you get is uh, access to additional podcast episodes. There are already four waiting there to be downloaded, 
and a new one has been added today about the uh, 1950s atomic horror, them, about giant ants, which have been uh, <laughs> mutated and made into monsters by atomic uh, testing out in the desert. And of course, the film's packed full of Cold War symbolism and fears about uh, radiation, but also fears about the Komi invader. So that's out today for patrons. So take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or at my website, juliemcdowell.com. Thank you all for listening, and I'll be back next week. <laughs>